You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. All right, well, good morning. As Dale said, I am Ethan. I'm the family pastor here. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, We're in a series. This is the second week in a series called How to Make a Great Decision. And so we're going to jump in today. Um, Last week, you should know, I went on a road trip, or I got back from a road trip. I did two weeks driving my family all the way to Texas, driving them all the way back, car full of kids. We had a great time. It was a good trip. But along the way, I made a lot of decisions. Some of those decisions, they panned out really well. Other decisions, not so much. There are, there are two, two decisions in particular that stand out to me, two, two kind of contrasting decisions. Both had to do with our hotels. Now, I, I had booked our hotels you know, months before. I was on top of it. I got our hotels all booked. But then on the first night of our trip, it turned out that I had booked the worst hotel in Tucson, Arizona, possibly <laughs> the worst hotel in all of Arizona. Um, it was one of those, it was just dirty. It was one of those, you know, non-smoking rooms. And uh, nothing worked. It was just, it was just a terrible experience. Uh, fortunately, my kids kind of thought it was funny. They thought it was funny that nothing worked. But my wife and I, we were, we were much less amused by this hotel that we stayed in. I, I was thinking, man, this is just great. As every hotel that I've booked like this, you know, these weeks of traveling, is every single hotel along the way of this fine, outstanding caliber. I was not looking forward to the next night and the next night beyond that. So I was a little bit nervous. The next night, we were pulling up to our next hotel in Odessa, Texas. I was getting nervous. What have I done? Uh, and it really didn't help that the name of the hotel was the MCM Grande Fun Dome. <laughs> MCM Grande Fun Dome. Who books a hotel like that? I do. Um, I thought, this is either going to be really good or really bad. We pulled up. Turned out this was one of the best decisions I made on the whole trip, guys. It was awesome. Uh, They had this indoor miniature golf course for the kids. Long day of road trip. They're playing mini golf. They're swimming in the pool. There's a storm outside. They're swimming in the indoor pool. There's a kid's play place. They had killer breakfast buffet. I thought we were just getting a single room. We ended up with a suite. It was great. So, guys, I went from zero to hero with this decision. It redeemed the whole trip got us back on track. But I'd chosen both of these hotels months earlier, you know, just sitting in my living room, sitting on my couch, choosing these hotels. And then hindsight revealed that I'd made one great decision and one really terrible decision. And this is actually how all of life works. Our tomorrow, our futures, are built out of the decisions that we make today. We make a decision today, it impacts tomorrow, next month. It impacts next year, a decade. Eventually, our decisions add up and they impact our lifetime. Our future is built out of the decisions we make today. And when it comes to hotels, the consequences of that, they're pretty low and they're pretty short-lived. But what about decisions, bigger decisions, when we're talking about who am I going to marry? Where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? How am I going to spend my money? How am I going to invest my time? When we're talking about decisions like that, now we're talking about decisions that have pretty significant consequences, and they're not short-term. Those are long-term consequences. And so we want to know, how do you know when you've made a great decision? Last week, we said this. Elliot said this last week. We'll say it again this week. You've made a great decision when you make a decision that lines up with God's will. That's when you've made a great decision. And so if you're a follower of Christ and you have a complex decision, a big decision on your plate, that's your goal. That's the goal that you're looking at. Your goal is this, to understand God's will and to make a decision that lines up with it. The goal's that simple. But then the big question is, how do you do that? How do you go about making a decision like that? 
Well, the tool that we're looking at in this series is called the decision-making train. Now, this tool, it helps you figure out what it is that God wants you to do as you follow him, as he leads you down the path that he has for you in your life. So I'm just going to walk through this real quick. The engine of the train is prayer. It all starts with prayer. Prayer is the beginning of the train. Then the coal car, that's the word of God. That's the Bible. And what the coal car does is it fuels the engine. It's the fuel for the engine. In the same way, the word of God, the Bible, that fuels our prayer and leads out our decision-making. Next is the passenger car. This is counsel, getting wise counsel, other people on board. And then you've got the freight car. The freight car is circumstances. And then finally, pulling up the rear, we have the caboose, which is emotions. And so each of these cars is important, and each one has a role to play. But actually, it turns out this, this train, it needs rails to run on. You can't just take a train and drive it down Beach Boulevard. It doesn't work like that. A train, it needs a specific environment. And the environment that a train needs, it's not overly complicated. It needs a clear, well-maintained track. That's pretty much what a train needs. And without that, it's next to useless. Or I think we could say a train is useless without that track. And so similarly, there are environments in our lives that can make making a great decision nearly impossible. There are things that can make it very difficult for us. We can set out to make a decision, but there are environments that just kind of mess that up and keep that from happening. So last week, Elliot talked about four questions that we can ask to help us create a great environment to make a good decision. And what that does is it helps us kind of clear away the debris that adds confusion to decision making. So if you missed last week, if you weren't here for that, and especially if you have a big decision on your plate, I really recommend going back and checking out that message. I think that would be really helpful to go watch that online. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to ask four more questions. But instead of focusing on the environment of making a great decision, today what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the motive behind a great decision. That's where we'll spend our time. And when we're talking about motives, what we're really doing is we're talking about the inside, what's on the inside. The environment, that's kind of external. That's stuff that, that we can see. I can uh, you know, observe your life, you can observe mine, and we can see what each other's environments are like, the external things around us. When it comes to motive, you can't see my motives. I can't see your motives. I don't know what they are. But while my motives, they might be invisible to you, it turns out that they're clearly seen by God. God clearly sees in our hearts, he sees our motives. But not only does he see them, he actually, he judges them. He evaluates our motives. Proverbs 16.2 says this, it says, all a person's ways seem right in his own opinion. Your ways seem right to you, my ways, they seem right to me. But the Lord, he evaluates the motives. He's evaluating what's inside. He's judging. And this invisible place inside of us where our motives reside, this is what the Bible calls, refers to as the heart. The heart. And the Bible, the heart, this is the decision-making center of our being. When we're talking about the heart, when we read that in the Bible, we can understand that as the decision-making center of our being. It's where our thoughts, our feelings, our values, our perspectives, and our motives kind of all combined together inside of us, and then out, out of that is produced our decisions and our actions. That's what the heart is. And as we've said, our decisions, they make up our future. And so this means that what happens in the heart is actually determining the entire course of our life. And Proverbs 4.23, it speaks to this exactly. It says, Guard your heart. Guard that decision-making center of your being. Guard it above all else, for it determines the entire course of your life. And so, to lay a groundwork for a great decision, we need to examine our motives 
And we need to guard our hearts, examine our motives and guard our hearts. If we fail to check our motives, what we're doing is we're running the risk of having a, a clear track and a theoretically functioning train, but then actually failing and just going through the motions of making a great decision and failing to seek God in the process. We want to avoid that. We want to avoid that if we can. So today, let's ask these diagnostic questions to examine our motives. And then with each question, what we're going to do is we're going to land on a heart goal. So the diagnostic questions, we'll, we'll look at our motives, but then we want to have something to actually shoot toward. If we realize something is off in our motives, we want to have a goal to shoot for. So we'll look at a heart goal along with each of these questions. The first question that we have is this. It's, is a hidden agenda influencing my decision? Is a hidden agenda influencing my decision? Now, why would this be important? Well, we got to remember here that the goal, the goal is to understand God's will and to make a decision that lines up with it. And so the danger of a hidden agenda is that your search for God's will can easily turn into a search just to justify your own will. Timothy 4, or 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, it speaks to this. It says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. So it's talking about here, these itching ears. This is reference to people who they're really not seeking truth. They're really not after God's will. Instead, what's driving the train for them? Well, it says right here, it's their passions. It's the, the desires that they have. These emotions that are supposed to be in the rear, in the caboose, well, they're out in front, and they find themselves pulling the whole show, these passions. And so as a pretense, what these people do is they accumulate for themselves teachers who will suit their passions. What they're doing is they're cherry-picking any idea, any teaching that's going to accommodate the goal that they want, the, the outcome that they want, their desires, they're going to drift toward those things and cherry-pick those ideas. And the result is that they turn away from truth. They turn away from seeking God's will. Now the desire, whatever that might be, it ends up trumping God's will. And every one of us actually does this. We shouldn't read this passage and just think, oh, those people, <laughs> those people with itching ears way back then, those silly people. No, we are those people. Each one of us has done this. We've all made decisions where we fail to seek God because we're afraid that he's going to lead us. If we seek him, he's going to lead us toward an outcome other than the outcome that we most favor. For me, I think some of the times when I've struggled with this the most in the past decade is when my wife and I, we've, we've brought up and we've asked the question, should we have more kids or should we stop having more kids? Uh, we've learned this topic is, is ripe with all kinds of hidden agendas that can kind of weasel their way into that conversation. And so what it does is it produces these, these itching ears that really hear what they want to hear and are open to what they want to hear and are closed off to really everything else other than that. But then having a preference on a big decision like this or, or other decisions, that's not really a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all to desire to have kids. That's a great thing, to have more kids, to, to desire to be done having kids, to desire to marry or to, to move, to change jobs. These aren't bad things at all. In fact, and, and, and if, if a requirement for every decision that we made was that we just had no preference, well, we'd really never decide anything. We almost always have a preference, especially when it comes to these high-level decisions. We almost always have a preference in our, in our decision-making. And our motives, they're always going to be mixed to some degree. And so our goal is not to eliminate agendas altogether. That's not the goal that we're after. Instead, the heart goal here is we want to work toward a neutral heart. That's our aim, a neutral heart. 
And to clarify what I mean by that, a neutral heart, it doesn't mean an indifferent heart, and it doesn't mean an apathetic heart. It means a submitted heart, a submitted heart. This is actually what we see from Jesus. If you look back at Jesus the night before that he was crucified, he's, he's praying before he knows he's going to be crucified, and he's praying, he's praying to God, and we see him demonstrate for us this kind of neutral heart or submitted heart. Here's what he said. And this is amazing. We get to actually read the words that Jesus prayed. Jesus actually prayed these words, and we have them available to us. So let's read Jesus' prayer. He said, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. He's talking about the suffering that he's going through. He's saying he doesn't want to experience that suffering. May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So here, Jesus, he's not indifferent. He actually wants to avoid the, the suffering. He has a preference. He has an outcome that he favors when he's going before God. And the context shows us that he's actually sweating blood as he's praying that. This, that's how intense this, these emotions that he's going through are. And this is just the polar opposite of apathetic here. He cared deeply about the results that he was praying over. But he cared deeply, but he was 100% submitted. He said, yet not as I will, but as you will. So for us, this is, this is kind of the goal. This is what we're shooting for. How do we then achieve a heart like this that we see in Jesus? Well, a few things. The, the, the first thing that we can do is to identify that agenda. Don't let it be a hidden influence or a hidden agenda. Identify it, and then it's no longer hidden. You gotta name it, call it out, call it for what it is. It might be something that you want, or it might be something that you want to avoid, as is the case here with Jesus. He wants to avoid that suffering. But whatever it is, you have to be honest with it, and be honest about it with yourself, with God, and also be honest with, with it, about it with uh, anyone that's involved in making that decision with you. We're very rarely making a decision completely on our own, and so we want to be honest about our agendas, not let them be hidden for the people that we're making a decision with. And this is especially important if you are married to the person that you're making the decision with. Loop them in, let them know what's going on. Next, as you survey the options available to you, you want to identify that option which you most want to avoid and tell God that you're willing to do even that if it's what he wants. And that's really hard to do. That means is that if, for example, I want to stop having kids, I need to go before God, and I need to say, God, I want to be done having kids, but if that's not your will, I'm willing to have more kids. I'm willing to do what you want to do. Or in the opposite case, if I want to, be, if I want to continue having kids, I need to go before God, and I need to say, God, the opposite of what I want to do is to, is to be done having kids, but if that's where you lead me, if I go through this process, and it turns out that's where you've led, I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to do even the exact opposite of what I want. Along with this, a really practical thing that I found to be helpful personally is to pray with physically open hands, to actually physically open up my hands when I'm praying this to God. Um, I, I feel kind of awkward doing it, I'll tell you. I'm sitting there at my kitchen table early in the morning and kind of <laughs> there by myself praying, and my, my palms are physically, physically open. It feels strange to do, but the reason that I do that anyway is it's a simple way to show God that my hands aren't just grasping at that decision, at that agenda that I have. Instead, as I'm praying, just physically opening up my hands, showing God that I'm submitted to him, I'm not going to cling, I'm going to be submitted, really helps me at that heart level to, to actually physically submit, submit to God in those difficult situations. Now, a warning here when it comes to neutral hearts is that a, a neutral heart, you might get it, 
but it's actually a very difficult thing to keep. It's hard to keep a neutral heart. It's not something that you get it and then you just permanently retain it. It's not like, it's not like my wedding ring. So a neutral heart is not like this ring that you know, my, I put on or my wife put on 10 years ago and it, I barely ever take it off. It just goes with me everywhere I go. I don't have to think about it. I didn't get up this morning and think, oh, better remember my wedding ring. It's just there. It's with me everywhere I go. A neutral heart is not like that. A neutral heart is actually more like a healthy marriage than it is like a wedding ring. A healthy marriage, everyone knows, that takes work. That takes effort. And if you don't give it attention, that the health of that marriage begins to slip away. So in the same way, a neutral heart, it requires active work. It requires going back before God and reiterating before him time and time again, not as I will, but as you will. So the first question is, is a hidden agenda influencing my decision? The next question is this, is people-pleasing influencing my decision? People-pleasing. People-pleasing, it's really a type of fear when you look at it. It's a type of fear. Either you're afraid of the reaction that your decision is going to cause in others, you're afraid of what they might do in response to your decision, or you're afraid of what they're going to think of you in response to your decision. Maybe, Maybe they'll think less of you. Maybe they'll be disappointed in you. Either way, when we step into people-pleasing, we're no longer asking, how do I discover God's will? When we're people-pleasing, what we're actually doing is now we're asking, how do I make as many people as possible happy with me? Or maybe, not, maybe it's not about the number of people that we're trying to make happy with us. Maybe it's just about those one or two people that are really important, that we really care what they think about us. And so we're asking, how do I make that one person? How do I make these handful of people really happy with me. Either way, we're no longer asking as a primary question, how do I discover God's will? That's been supplanted with another primary question. And for me, I'll tell you, there was a time in my life when I thought that I had kind of moved past people-pleasing. I thought that more or less that was something that was in the, in the rear-view mirror for me. Uh, and that all changed about five years ago when I was placed in charge of the Upward Basketball League here at Seabreeze. I was placed in charge of that league. It's got you know, hundreds of families, a bunch of coaches, and one of my tasks was to put together the schedules, blend all these schedules together for practices and games, which is fine. But I realized as I went about it, I was trying to do it without letting anyone be disappointed. I was trying to make hundreds of people happy at the same time and not disappoint anybody. And I, 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 it just my self-image fell apart. I realized I am totally a people pleaser. In fact, there are probably a dozen of you in this room right now that I've disappointed in some way related to that upward basketball league. I know, I know. Uh, But you know what? I think it's funny because for you, you probably just shrugged it off and didn't give it a second thought. For me, it bothered me. Apparently, I want all you people to be happy. And so I'm just having to get over that. Uh, And I am. (laughs) Slowly but surely. So I'm no longer in denial about people-pleasing. I realize that's a real thing in my life. But we all face decisions about something or other where people-pleasing is a very prominent factor. And it's usually bigger than, is my kid's basketball practice going to be on a Tuesday or on a Wednesday? It's usually for something much more significant than that. So for example, what if your parents bought a house in your neighborhood specifically? They moved to your neighborhood specifically to be around grandkids. That's great. But then what if you start sensing from God that he's got something else for you that involves you moving to another location? Oh, man, that's a tough one. That's a tough people-pleasing situation. 
Or what if, you know, at work, you've got to make hard decisions that impact people's jobs, impact people's livelihoods. Man, that's really tough, people-pleasing situation. Often the decision that's right before God is wrong before others. That's what makes this so tough. What's right before God isn't always met with approval by the people that we really want approval from. And that's what puts us in these situations. Galatians 1.10, it says, am I, now, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So this is Paul writing this. And so we can read this and we can say, if you want God's approval, forget about please, pleasing others. Just open, shut case, right? Well, not so much. The same guy, same Paul who wrote this also wrote Romans 15 too, where he said, each of us should please his neighbors for their good to build them up. So we're not supposed to try to please others and we are supposed to try to please others. <laughs> What's going on here? Well, this is actually a matter of getting our pleasing priorities in order, our pleasing priorities in order. A big picture view just of how the Bible shows that God wants us to structure our priorities. It looks something like this. This is just a simple version of God's priorities for us from the Bible. So we've got God and his mission. That's at the top, God and his mission. Then below that is the interests of others. And then below that is my own interests. My own interests are important. They're just less important than these first two things. Now, people-pleasing occurs when the first two here, they get out of order. We switch those first two things, and the new order looks like this. Now we've got the interest of others. That's the top. Below that, now we have God and his mission. So still important, but now we're trying to fit in God and his mission around this top priority of pleasing other people and looking out for their interests. And then my own interest under that. That's people-pleasing. And the irony here is that when we make this switch, it's actually a self-serving switch, isn't it? It's actually done for our own benefit. And so what we're actually doing is we're taking ourselves and we're throwing ourselves to the top of the list. Now, the most important thing is really me and my feelings. We've completely switched the priorities that God has for us. And so when we find people pleasing, influencing our decisions, our heart goal for this is simply this. We want to prioritize pleasing God over pleasing others. Prioritize God over pleasing others. So do we seek to please others? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, we do. In fact, we put their interests above our own. That's how important that is. But we don't do that at the expense of pleasing God. Putting others first before God, it's actually a type of fear. It's called fear of man. That's the name of it for, in the Bible, fear of man. And scripture says that fear of man is really a trap. Proverbs 29, 25, it says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Intuitively, we think that people-pleasing is what's going to keep us safe. But this scripture shows us that it's actually those who trust in God, who trust in God by putting him above everything else. Those are the ones that are really kept safe. So we want to avoid the trap. We want to prioritize pleasing God above pleasing others so we can make great decisions. Our next question is this. Are intense emotions influencing my decision? Are intense emotions influencing my decision? Now, emotions absolutely have a positive role to play 
in our decision-making. They even show up on the decision-making train. So emotions, we don't need to discount those or, or pretend like they're not important at all. And we're going to talk more about them next week. But one problem with emotionally charged decision-making is that high emotions and tension emotions, they can easily distort our perspective and, and really cause us to miss some true things. They can distort our take on reality and cause us then to make hasty decisions based on that distorted perspective. A hasty decision, that's what occurs when we basically bypass the first four things in that decision-making train. So we just jump, we leapfrog prayer, we, we, we leapfrog God's word, we jump over counsel and circumstances, and we just go straight to the emotions. And both positive and negative emotions can cause us to be hasty. Scripture speaks to both of these. Proverbs 19 talks about positive emotions and haste. It says, Proverbs 19.2 says, enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. Haste makes mistakes. So enthusiasm, that's a good thing. I think I could probably use a little more enthusiasm in my life. We'll, we'll mark that down as a positive thing. But it's common for enthusiasm to actually get us into a lot of trouble. Maybe it's enthusiasm about a major purchase that leads to a bad decision and then that buyer's remorse. Maybe, this is very common, maybe it's enthusiasm about a relationship, that person that just makes you feel really great. Enthusiasm about a relationship that can lead to all kinds of bad decisions, including a hasty decision to get married that can really cause pain for generations, not just a lifetime. Just because something feels exciting and feels right doesn't mean that it can't have a harmful impact. And unfortunately, that's a lesson that we often end up learning the hard way. But it's not just positive emotions that can do this. Negative emotions do it as well. Proverbs 14, 17 says, a quick-tempered person does foolish things. Well, I've experienced this. Uh, some people actually spend their lives just kind of getting angry and, and bouncing from one job to the next. They get angry at work, they leave, they, they do the same thing at the next spot, the next spot. Same thing at a church. They, they get angry and leave a church. They go to the next church, the next church. They spend their lives just kind of bouncing from one thing to the next, burning bridges as they go. A recent trend that you, you might have noticed, a lot has been written about this trend, is that there's a lot of people moving away from our state. People getting fed up with something about the way the state is being run and just, just leaving. Now, a lot of people are doing that prayerfully. That's true. A lot of people are doing that prayerfully. They're seeking God, and they're trying to make, understand his, his will and make a decision that lines up with it. But then you also have a lot of people who are doing it rashly, just in a fit of frustration. Just, I'm fed up. I'm out of here. Quick temper can cause a person to do foolish things. The lesson for us here is this. When we sense high emotions, whether it's good or bad, we need to recognize that we're in the decision-making danger zone. So high emotions equals the decision-making danger zone. And to quote that strange rock troll lady thing from Frozen, people make bad choices when they're mad or scared or stressed. That's a real thing. There's some Disney wisdom for you. But because of this, when we find ourselves in this decision-making danger zone, our heart goal is this. We need to pump the brakes and slow down. When emotions are high, we don't need a big, complicated goal. We need a very simple goal. So when our emotions are high, our goal is simply slow down. That'll buy us some time to go through the rest of the decision-making process and avoid making a decision that we're actually going to really regret. 
We want to avoid making major decisions when we're feeling angry, when we're feeling ecstatic, lonely, discouraged, tired, even when we're feeling hungry. I'll tell you, there have been times for me when the best thing that I can do to avoid making a terrible decision is just go make myself a sandwich. Maybe take a nap, come back with full belly, well-rested, and reconsider the decision from that perspective. So if possible, when your blood starts to boil, and you feel like you're, or if you feel like you're on top of the world, go ahead, hit pause on making those major decisions, and your future self will be very grateful. Last question, do my priorities match God's priorities? When my, fir- when my, when my wife and I first met, she was living in Texas at the time. I was living here in Southern California. And so we ended up dating long distance for eight months before we got engaged. Now, I remember getting to the point where I knew I wanted to marry her. And that was actually the really easy part. It was easy to get to the point where I knew I wanted to marry her. The hard part was figuring out the logistics and deciding on these logistics of how to combine these two adult lives together that were well-established in these different states. You know, I had my job, I had my church, I had my connections, I had my whole life here, and she had hers over there in Texas. And so, honestly, I just, I really felt stuck. I didn't know how to get past that and, and how, to, how, to, how to solve that, that problem. Um, and so I did the only thing that I could really think to do. I called in the big guns. I called my dad. I said, Dad, I need your help. <laughs> so we met up at a Starbucks. And you got to understand about my dad. My dad's, my dad's a, really, a really wise man. He really loves God, follows God. And so I was expecting some sagely advice from my dad. So you can imagine then that I was more than a little disappointed when he pulled out a piece of paper and said, all right, let's make a pros and cons list. <laughs> what? I'm your only son. I'm facing this major decision. I know you're a wise man. And that's your go-to, the pros and cons list? you got to be kidding me. Well, actually, it ended up being super helpful. So I'm, I, it, it was, I look back on that conversation, and I see that as one of the most pivotal conversations of my life. He totally helped me sort things and get them in order. He helped me get all those things that, um, that weren't on the table, just get those hidden agendas out on the table, actually get them on paper, weigh them against each other. So I look back, that was, that was a super helpful conversation in my life. So needless to say, I am now a fan of the pros and cons list. I have been begrudgingly converted to a fan. I realize it can be a helpful tool, but it does have one major drawback. It's this, that everything on a pros and cons list, it actually needs to be assigned a weight or a value. You can't just tally up all the pros, tally up all the, con- all the cons, high score wins, and it just spits out your decision right there. That's not how that works. Each factor has a different value. It has a different weight that has to be attached to it. And it turns out that there's often a very big difference between what we value and what God values. Jesus was once talking to a group of religious leaders, and I want to read you what he said out of Luke chapter 16. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of God, but God knows your hearts. So here again, we see God seeing inside, actually discerning what's in our hearts. He says, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So Jesus is pointing out this discrepancy between what people value and what God values. God just uses a completely different value scale than we do. Some things that are are very weighty to us, we think are very important. That's that's like a feather to God. He says, "That's, that's not so important to me. And some things 
that are just like feathers to us, God says, oh no, that's a boulder to me. That's a really important thing. And so for us, our heart goal here is this. We want to learn to value what God values. We want to learn to value what he values. Now, a while back, I had a good friend come and have dinner with, with my wife and me. He was, uh, he was looking for some help processing a decision that he had at work. His boss, he'd offered him a promotion, and so he was weighing whether or not he was going to accept and take that promotion. Now, oftentimes when you get a promotion or a job change at work, you're just told, this is your new thing. You don't have a choice. That was not the case here. They had actually given him a choice. Do you want this or do you not? So he came, he was trying to get some clarity on this decision that he had. As we talked, there were some really strong reasons why he should take the promotion. One, obviously, is, is there's, there's more money involved, which is a great thing. Um, there was more opportunity. There was opportunity for him to expand his influence. There was an opportunity for him to just demonstrate working with excellence. Um, these are things that are really important to God. God values those things. Another thing is that he was going to get to travel. And he's, he's a young guy. He's a sharp guy. I'm not surprised that he was getting offered a promotion. He's a sharp guy. He's also a really adventurous guy and, and single guy, too. And so he was really excited about the opportunity to travel and, uh, and kind of the adventure associated with that. And so there's this long list of pros, and there was only really one con. The one con was that because of the travel, he'd have to kind of back off and pull back from a volunteer responsibility that he had at his church, leading one of the, the major ministries there. So he'd have to back off from that in order to accept this new position. When he left our house, I really didn't know what he was going to decide. And really, I didn't know what he should decide. That was very much his decision to make. He was going to have to figure that out with God. I could help him, but I didn't really know what he should choose. A few weeks later, he told me that he'd actually turned it down. He'd, he'd turned down the position. What happened is that as he weighed the decision, he was convinced that God's top priority for him in that season of life was to lead that ministry at his church. And so he reasoned that an opportunity that was in conflict with that priority was outside of God's will. I thought his reasoning was very sound. And what I really respected about my friend was this, that, that he didn't just pull the trigger. He actually went through the hard work, and it really is hard work. He went through the hard work of going through a solid decision-making process to uncover God's will. He didn't just jump to it because it made sense on the surface level. And as he did that, he thought deliberately about what God valued versus what he valued, and he chose to base his decision on God's priorities as best he understood them. And so for us, when we go to make a decision, it's really easy to write out a long list of pros in support of the decision that we favor the most. But to make a great decision, we need to take that list, figuratively or maybe literally take a list before God, and say, God, what on here is most important to you? What on my list is, is, that's really important to me is not so important to you? What on here that, that, um, that I don't think is important is important to you? What, what am I overvaluing? Is there something that you would put on this list that I haven't put on this list? Go before God and ask what is most important to you. And when we do that, we're really setting ourselves up to make a great decision. So last week, we talked about the environment of a great decision. Today, we talked about the motive behind a great decision. Next week, we're going to look at that decision-making train itself, and we're going to look at how prayer, the Bible, how counsel, circumstances, emotion, how all these things kind of fit together to form this decision-making process. We're going to look at the process 
of a great decision. So I hope you'll join us next week as we wrap up this series. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come before you, and um, God, we thank you that you are, you are faithful and you are constant. That's what gives us hope in making a good decision. If you changed, if you weren't faithful, we'd have no anchor. We'd be lost. Uh, we, would, we would just struggle blindly trying to figure out life, God, but, but that's not the case. You, you, are, you are consistent, and, um, and you guide us, God. And so I pray that as we evaluate our motives behind decisions that we have, whether they're decisions that are presently on our plate or decisions that you know are headed our way that we don't even know about yet, I pray that you would help us to be honest in evaluating our motives, that, that your Holy Spirit would, would show us things that, that we would otherwise miss, and that um, we'd be really committed to, to following you and seeking your will above everything else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.